Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Jeffrey J. Matthews, author of Colin Power, Imperfect Patriot. How are you doing today? Doing great, Dr. Tyler. Thank you for asking me on the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could start by telling the audience a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Absolutely. I, I think I would have to start with my parents. Uh, my my dad was a farm boy from Kansas who joined the army right out of high school in 1957, uh, and my he eventually got stationed to Germany where he met my mother who was uh, who's German. I uh, was born in Bavaria, so my childhood I grew up traveling. Uh, in, uh, around Europe and across the United States and different places and going to all kinds of museums. And uh, my mom is a big lover of history. And I think I kind of got the history gene from her. But when I went to college, uh, originally as an undergraduate, I was more focused on getting a job. And so I actually was a student in business and finance and, and eventually got my MBA. And I spent my early career as a banker. But then I made a switch and a decision to go to school full time to get my PhD at the University of Kentucky. Uh, in history, U.S. foreign policy specifically. Uh, and when I ended up going for my first uh, teaching position, professor position at the University of Puget Sound, where I am now, I am actually uh, have a job in the School of Business and Leadership. And so my courses are largely focused on a combination of leadership and with a cross-section of history. Uh, and so when I was looking for my next book project years ago, I thought uh, doing a biography of General Powell kind of fit my teaching, mirrored my teaching well in the sense of he was a, a leadership icon, certainly an important historical figure, so I could combine my interest in history and the military and leadership uh, and tell General Powell's story. Now, tell the audience your first encounter with uh, General Colin Powell. So I first reached out to his office in about 2014 to get access to his personal papers, which he had donated to the National Defense University in New Jersey. And I got permission indirectly from him. He approved of it, but it was his assistant that reached out to me with the approval. So I didn't meet him at that time. But about three years later, when I had was approaching uh, my first draft of the book, uh, I had written an, a newspaper article for the Hill newspaper, which made a significant reference to General Powell about lessons that we can learn from his experience. But it also included a criticism of him. Uh, and I was really surprised that a few days after the article was published, General Powell actually reached out to me and sent me an email on a Sunday night. And I wasn't quite sure it was him, uh, but he wanted to, uh, he complimented me on a previous book that I had written, but he also was criticizing my article that I had written in the newspaper. Uh, and rather than debate uh, General Powell via email, I kind of maneuvered over a series of emails to get an interview. And three months later, so in June of 2017, he invited me to his house. Uh, and I was there for about four hours and discussing all the contents of the book from his childhood. Uh, and to him becoming Secretary of State. And I have to say, it certainly was one of the uh, the highlights of my career. And um, and General Powell uh, in person is just like many of us viewed him on television, extremely smart, uh, affable, funny, uh, warm, just very warm person. And so it turned out just to be a great experience and a great help to me in terms of completing the book. In chapter one, you talk about uh, General Powell's immigrant parents. Um, what did they want for their son? 
Well, they, his, both of his parents immigrated from Jamaica um, not too long after World War One, so in the 1920s, kind of during the Harlem Renaissance, uh, and they settled. But they came across, they came to America independently. They didn't know each other, uh, and met once they were in the United States in Harlem, uh, and. They were working class people. Uh, she worked in the garment district in New York, and he worked in a uh, at a clothing store and kind of the shipping department, uh, if you will. Uh, but I, Powell, I, I think is, is right that um, kind of this West Indian culture, if you will, that they brought uh, with them. Uh, included like an emphasis on education, uh, an emphasis on work ethic, uh, and an ambition in the best sort of uh, of the word, um, and an emphasis on family uh, and res- being respectful and obedient. And so that was kind of the environment that Pal grew up with. Uh, and living in the South Bronx is really where he grew up after the age of four. Uh, and so what they really wanted, uh, Pal and his sister as older sister was essentially to move up a station in life, to, to be more prosperous than, than they were. And they saw education as being fundamental to their kids' uh, well-being, to join the middle class, essentially, I think was their dream for their children. Summer church camp. Tell us what happened at the St. Margaret's Episcopal Church. Yes, it's interesting because Pal Pal loved the church and he loved all the kind of the pageantry of, of the church and uh, kind of the hierarchy and the stability and the rules. Uh, but there was a few occasions where Pal, as a youngster, got into trouble. And uh, one summer in upstate New York, he was at a church camp with uh, some friends and uh, somehow they were able to uh, acquire some beers. Uh, and uh, the beers that they didn't drink, they hid. Uh, and uh, to their bad uh, fortune, uh, the priest at the camp discovered the beers and called all, all the kids out from the camp and demanded to know right whose beers these were. And of course, everybody was scared as all get out. Uh, but Pal stepped forward and and he said it was it was his beer and that he was to to blame. Uh, and other kids, his friends, then stepped out and said that they were to blame also. Well, of course, you might imagine Pal's parents were were furious that he had brought essentially brought disrespect to the family and at a church event no less. Um, but they did find out that Powell was the one who confessed, if you will, to to the crime. And I think they really respected his honesty uh, and essentially his courage for being able to speak up. And so I think because in the end he did the right thing, uh, he did not suffer any severe punishment. Uh, and for Powell, I think it was an early lesson about the importance of being honest, uh, regardless of what the consequences might be. You talk about his high school years. Was he active in sports? What type of high school life did he have? It's pretty interesting because given where Pal ended up as this uh, remarkable leader, um, that in terms in high school, he was really just kind of seen as a very affable, uh, nice uh, uh, young man with a lot of friends. Uh, but he was not like a star athlete by any means. He he wasn't a great student. Uh, he wasn't a leader in student government to any significance. Uh, and so that was really, um, to me, kind of opened a question of this larger question for the book is how how do I explain the arc of his career from someone who wasn't a great student or athlete? How does this person become right, this leadership icon uh, in American history and even on an international stage? Uh, and so that was kind of a basis point uh, of me trying to uh, to say, how did he transform himself uh, from that young man uh, to what we know him to be? City College in Manhattan. What was his major? How did he 
find the ROTC. Yeah, this is a pivotal time. Powell really didn't have personal ambition to go to college, but certainly, as we mentioned, his parents did. Uh, and the City College in uh, Manhattan uh, was basically free tuition. Uh, and so it was one of his few choices to go to college was there. Uh, and his his mom especially wanted him to study engineering because she thought, of course, that would land him right a good job, an attractive job. And Powell was uh, amenable to go along with that until he started taking engineering courses, which he realized were soon kind of above his head uh, academically. Uh, and so from that experience, Powell was kind of shopping for a new major, and he basically had heard that if he got a, a major in geology, that was one of the easiest majors on campus. And so he ended up, of all things, becoming a geology major and, and did graduate as with a geology degree. Um, but more importantly, in terms of uh, influence on Powell's life was uh, he noticed um, young college uh, men dressed in these kind of snappy army uniforms. Um, and he was really kind of attracted at first by uh, just the way that they looked. And, the, and they were people who were in the ROTC program at City College, the, an army program. And so he learned more uh, and he quickly realized kind of the camaraderie that those young men had amongst themselves. And again, someone who really likes hierarchy and kind of rules uh, that Powell felt being away from home for the first time, that the ROTC program and all that came with it was kind of a, a new substitute family for him. Uh, and he felt less isolated uh, once he joined ROTC uh, and he excelled in ROTC. He, he did not excel much outside of ROTC. OTC, he liked to say it was his straight A's that he would get in the ROTC program that elevated his GPA high enough so he could actually uh, graduate. He would say, I graduated from college by the skin of my teeth, uh, thanks to the ROTC program. Uh, and in that program, uh, he also then, of course, found his professional calling that that he wanted to be a soldier uh, for as long as he could after he graduated. The next chapter you label Dutiful Soldier, 1958 to 1969. What was his work ethic to move up the ranks? Uh, so certainly Powell's work ethic, and again, I think it stems from his parents' example uh, and their expectation, uh, was an extremely hard-working uh, uh, young soldier. And we have to remember, too, that uh, when Powell uh, joins the Army in 1958, it's only 10 years after integration had started, been started by President Truman. Um, and so even though integration had begun, uh, it was still clear that there was significant racism uh, that one might have to contend with uh, in the Army. Uh, and so Powell was determined uh, that he would be the best soldier he could uh, and to overcome any kind of discrimination or thoughts that he might be a lesser junior officer than his kind of white peers, his white colleagues. Uh, and so he proved himself over and over. And it's not to say that he didn't make some mistakes along the way. Uh, but he quickly overcame them, uh, right, learning from them. And when he went to Germany for his first major assignment, one of the things that really surprised him was how welcoming the Germans were themselves, the German civilians were to African-American soldiers. He described it as really kind of being a breath of freedom uh, to be living in Germany in his first assignment. But he did very well there. And then when he came back to the States, uh, he was stationed in Massachusetts for another assignment. Again, did really well, benefited from uh, some really good mentors, which is a theme of the book that Powell had uh, mentor after mentor or mentor in his career that really helped him along. And then I would say a turning point in his early career in the 60s was uh, he spent two years uh, in the Vietnam War. 
Now, when he went the first time in 1962, late 1962, he was part of President John F. Kennedy's kind of military advisory program. So we actually uh, technically weren't in the war yet. Uh, but Pal, uh, in his first tour, he actually served uh, with, with South Vietnamese army units throughout the year. Uh, and did very well and was really uh, eventually uh, well respected uh, by his South Vietnamese superiors as well as his American superiors. Um, and he actually ended up getting injured. Um, he stepped his foot completely through a punjee stick uh, and it had to be evacuated from the field. So when he ended up leaving Vietnam for his first tour, he was decorated with the Purple Heart and a bronze star uh, and glowing uh, uh, commendations. Uh, and so he came back to the States uh, for about four years, stationed mostly in Georgia at Fort Benning, uh, where Powell was uh, doing a lot of training, becoming a, an army ranger, attending an infantry school. He actually became a, uh, a teacher uh, at the infantry school when he finished as a student. Um, and uh, from there, uh, he actually got sent uh, uh, to Kansas. There is a military school that most Army officers go through called the Command and General Staff College. Uh, and Powell excelled there to an extraordinary degree. So out of a class of, say, a thousand students, when Powell graduated uh, from this military college, he was second in his class of a thousand students. So he had really uh, proven himself. So just despite him not doing well, uh, that well in high school and or college in the military setting, uh, he excelled extraordinarily and really began to really demonstrate, I think, his intellect. Um, and after graduating then from Kansas, uh, he was sent back to Vietnam. Uh, in 1968, when the war uh, right was well on from the American perspective. Uh, and again, Powell excelled uh, on the second tour in Vietnam. He was less in a combat situation most of the time, but there was an occasion where he proved heroic. He was in a helicopter with some other officers, including uh, his superior uh, uh, general, and the helicopter crashed. Um, and Powell, despite breaking his ankle, was able to rescue a few other people out of the helicopter before it exploded. So by the time that tour ended as well, uh, Powell was doing extremely well uh, by 1969-70. Uh, his record was uh, almost impeccable. Uh, and so he was really seen as kind of an up-and-comer by that time. Chapter 3, Follower and Commander. After he returned, tell us about his D.C. years. Uh, yes. Uh, and so uh, when Powell was uh, still in Vietnam for that last tour, uh, he had learned about essentially a graduate school program that the military and the army offered, particularly that they would pay uh, for officers, certain officers to go back to school uh, in a civilian setting. Uh, so uh, Powell ended up going to George Washington University and over the course of a year uh, plus earned his MBA. Uh, by then, he had been promoted to lieutenant colonel. Uh, part of that program, he was uh, got an internship, if you will, at the Pentagon. Um, and then he also uh, was encouraged by the Army to apply for uh, something called the White House Fellows Program. Uh, and this is a very elite program that the White House sponsors of about 30 people who are seen to be amongst the best and the brightest of the particular generation. So Powell applied uh, and he got raving recommendation letters from former superiors uh, who said what an outstanding uh, young officer he was with immense potential. Uh, and so that experience just added uh, to not only his intellectual development, uh, but also in terms of starting really to see leadership in government outside the military perspective. 
Let's talk about the OMB experience. Yes. And so the Office of Management and Budget uh, was actually part of, uh, Powell was assigned there as part of the White House Fellows Program. Uh, and it was there under um, civilian leaders that he really saw basically how um, bureaucratic skill was needed in Washington to navigate um, passing of legislation, getting funding from Congress to support the executive branch, uh, and also the kind of uh, maybe dirty skill set uh, that some people use to uh, manipulate the system. And so Powell used to say that this was kind of his uh, master's de degree program in kind of the realism of how Washington, D.C. works. Uh, and so he made new friends, again, more mentors who would prove influential to his career. Uh, but certainly because <clears throat> Powell will eventually spend a, an abundance of his career as a senior officer in the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., uh, that OMB experience that he had as an intern, kind of, if you will, uh, really proved to be valuable. Korea. What type of uh, battalion was he assigned to and what were some of the problems and how did he handle it? Yeah, Powell was stationed um, as a, a battalion and commander in South Korea, where the United States has a large occupation force ever since the end of the Korean War. In this era, say 1973, though, the army was going through some severe problems. Uh, we're, we were still kind of dealing with the draft army, so it was not the all-volunteer army. Uh, in the As we know from the late 1960s and early 1970s, race relations were really tense, and this was also included in the military. Um, the military uh, and the army in particular had a severe drug abuse problem. Uh, and so retention rates in the military were low. Uh, it was difficult to recruit. And so Powell, uh, in this really kind of uh, his first major kind of leadership position when he gets stationed as a commander in South Korea, he's confronting a unit that has all kinds of problems that uh, he needs to deal with. Uh, and so this is where, where Powell's reputation continues to grow because he proves himself an extremely competent commander uh, and essentially by raising the standards, the expectations of what he expected out of his junior officers at that time, and then the non-commissioned officers, the sergeants, if you will, that they needed to all kind of prove themselves uh, and then as a result right to pass on to lower ranking soldiers in terms of what they would tolerate not tolerate uh, and over time uh, Powell's um, battalion became one of the best performing battalions from one of the worst to the best uh, largely because he kind of set the example and set the tone including his willingness uh, to get rid of really bad performers uh, as a way to inspire the good good performers to work hard so it turned out the South Korea assignment Powell would say was one of his happiest and most effective assignments you talk about one of his mentors mentor um, General Julius Beckton Jr. what did you find there yeah, this is interesting because uh, for Powell, um, it was only kind of in these in, the, in this time period where he realized that that there was this group of African American officers who essentially were banding together to support each other, uh, to provide mentorship and guidance about problems they might face in a largely predominantly white uh, army. And one of the key figures, kind of in this collective, which which was called the Rocks. Uh, was uh, General Julius Becton. Uh, and so Becton was always on the lookout. He was African-American uh, to help promising junior uh, and rising soldiers. Uh, and so 
when it came to thinking about Powell's next assignment in terms of the military education system, uh, Powell was uh, slated to go to what's known as the Army War College, which is a perfectly fine college, which a lot of promising ar Army officers go to. But there is seen as a superior college would be selected for the National War College, which takes the best of the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marines. Uh, it's kind of the, the cream of the crop. And uh, General Becton was part of the selection committee. And so he had Powell rerouted not to go to the Army War College, but to go to the higher kind of the elite school, the National War College. And uh, and it was just one example of Powell's uh, mentors kind of intervening on his behalf to help his career. Uh, and again, I think that's one of the themes of the books for readers uh, is to be always be on the lookout for mentors and how uh, you can have many different mentors for different parts of your lives. And certainly Powell was a beneficiary of that. And so Powell does get selected to the National War College um, and uh, and does well there as well. The annual war game exercise in West Germany. What happened? Yes. And so when Powell graduates from the National War College, he uh, gets a, a brigade command position uh, in Kentucky at Fort Campbell. Uh, and this is the 101st Airborne, kind of the famous airborne group out from coming out of World War One. Uh, and so most of the brigades were being selected uh, from Fort Campbell to go to Germany to participate in these important war game exercises. Uh, but the brigade that Powell was given to be commander of was the worst performing unit uh, at Fort Campbell. And so he was not invited with his uh, command to go to Germany, uh, which of course was extremely disappointing to Powell. Uh, and But what Powell did, when I think is really telling of his leadership and the example that he sets is, he saw this as an opportunity to prove himself uh, as a leader and for his brigade to prove themselves. And so while uh, the war games were going on in Germany and Powell was left at home, he doubled down on his commitment uh, to raise standards again and to have his men compete to get uh, distinctions uh, in performance while uh, while they were there alone in Fort Campbell. Uh, and he really raised the standards and the performance. And so when his bosses came back uh, from Germany and they observed what Powell was doing with his kind of low performing brigade, actually turned them into the highest performing brigade by the end of his tour. Uh, and so for Powell, this was just another kind of feather in his cap demonstrating uh, his leadership skills, uh, which then just led to more success from that point on. Working with the Pentagon, did he want to return? Uh, it was interesting because Powell really preferred being a soldier amongst soldiers, leading in the field, if you will, like in, in South Korea uh, and at Fort uh, Campbell in, in Kentucky. Uh, but he kept getting slotted by the army to go back to the Pentagon, which, of course, is a, is a more of a staff position, right, a bureaucratic position. Uh, and so while he appreciated the opportunities those provided him, uh, it really made him most happy to be in the field. But essentially, Powell did what the army wanted him to do. Uh, and so if they encouraged him to take a new assignment in Washington, uh, he would do that. And, and of course, that would become more true uh, the higher he got up in the army. New Visions of the Army Task Force. Tell us about that leadership position. Yeah, uh, ultimately, when uh, Powell uh, becomes uh, at, a, at a senior, more senior level in the military, uh, he begins to think about how to reorganize, reconstitute the army. And this will become more important later in his career when, when he becomes chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, because by then he can see that the Cold War is coming to an end. 
and so when he's at that position as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he decides I need to downsize um, the military because uh, if the Cold War is ending, Congress will downsize the military uh, by force, telling them what to do. So um, Powell saw this as an opportunity to be proactive. Uh, and so if we are going to downsize and change the nature of the military, let's change it the way he envisioned to confront future uh, problems that the military might have to con contend with outside of the Cold War. So I think it's a really good example um, of the importance of leaders taking the initiative uh, because Powell got a lot of resistance to wanting to make massive changes. Uh, but in the end, he ended up convincing the president and the secretary of defense uh, that he was right in terms of the reorganization. So I think it's a good lesson, not only of taking the initiative, but having the persistence to uh, overcome resistance and challenges that one might face when you're trying to lead change. National Security Advisor to the President, how did he juggle this position? Yeah, this this is uh, pretty interesting because um, Powell, uh, he will eventually become the National Security, uh, the Deputy National Security Advisor in the, in the Reagan administration. Um, but before he, he took that position, he was serving um, under Ronald Reagan's um, defense secretary by the, a man by the name of Casper Weinberger. And th by this time, Powell's a two-star general. And he works directly for uh, Secretary Weinberger for three straight years as a two-star general and is basically the secretary's right-hand man, if you will. Uh, and they were intimate, both professionally and, and um, personally. Uh, Powell saw basically the secretary as a second father figure uh, and often traveled with him and his wife and, and Powell's wife, Alma, as well. Uh, so they were really kind of joined at the hips. And there was no secrets between them, including government top secrets. Uh, and Powell's very successful uh, during those three years. Uh, and it's something we could talk about more. But this is the time of the uh, infamous Iran-Contra scandal uh, when the United States was selling, um, illegally selling missiles to Iran. Uh, and Powell was involved in that process. Um, but before that kind of scandal broke out, Powell had completed his three years and was assigned to Germany uh, and had been promoted to three stars. And while Powell was serving in Germany, the Iran-Contra scandal uh, became public. Um, and it's during this time where the Reagan administration was under severe uh, pressure uh, and trying to defend itself in this scandal that uh, President Reagan asked General Powell to come back to the Pentagon uh, this time to serve as the deputy, uh, meaning the number two national security advisor. Uh, and he wanted Powell's help uh, to essentially clean up the mess that led to the Iran-Contra scandal, which, of course, Powell was part of. Uh, but he ended up proving very effective in helping to reorganize the National Security Agency uh, to prevent it from uh, having kind of these clandestine operations, whether it's uh, the the illegal sales of the uh, arms to Iran or things that we were doing in Nicaragua with the Contras. Uh, and so Powell was given a lot of credit for reorganizing that government agency. Uh, and as and as a part of that process, uh, Powell was elevated then to become the national security advisor, who became Reagan's uh, sixth and final national security advisor for a year, the last year of uh, the Reagan's presidency, uh, and is generally given uh, very high marks for his performance there. When we look at uh, 1985, Weinberger and several others were charged with felonies because they lied to Congress. Um, 
at age 53, how was Powell positioned to move into the higher level? Yeah, it's interesting because this is a time when we have a change in presidency. So uh, Reagan, uh, right, last serves in 1988, and President George Bush, uh, Bush the elder, I like to call him, becomes president who was Reagan's vice president. Uh, and so part of the new President Bush coming in, he needed a uh, a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, and he was very familiar and very friendly with General Powell because Powell had worked at the White House uh, for quite a while. But he thought Powell was a little too young uh, to be the national security advisor. And it turns out uh, that Dick Cheney, who is George W. Bush's secretary of defense, Dick Cheney is the one who really argues for Powell, uh, that despite his relative inexperience compared to other four-star generals, uh, that Powell was the right man. And so President Bush accepts Dick Cheney's uh, recommendation, uh, and that's when Powell becomes chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And and I have to say, just in terms of um, Powell being an African-American leader, that Powell was the first deputy national security uh, advisor to be African-American, the first national security advisor who was ever uh, in that position. Uh, And then also then he's not only the first African-American chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, but he's also the only ROTC graduate. Uh, Most of the other uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff had gone to uh, West Point, uh, for example, the for their undergraduate degrees. And so Powell was true, a true trailblazer in this sense. Um, but we have to remember at the same time that this was going on uh, successfully in Powell's career, the Iran-Contra scandal, including some convictions of people like Oliver North um, and Admiral Poindexter, uh, that Powell was under scrutiny as well for his involvement. So so the legal process is very slow. And so it's going on all this time uh, that Powell was a three-star general and then a four-star general and as, as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The trials, if you say, and as you mentioned, his former boss, uh, Defense Secretary Weinberger, uh, was indicted on five felony charges for lying to Congress. And as I've mentioned, Powell and that uh, Weinberger were joined at the hip. And so uh, there were serious questions that if um, Weinberger had broken the law, whether Powell had not broken the law at the same time. And so there was this big question of whether the trials were going to come. And uh, as Weinberger's trial was coming closer and closer and Powell was expected to be a key witness is when President Bush pardons uh, Secretary Weinberger. And so no trial actually happened. And therefore, Powell did not have to give trial testimony. Panama crisis. What experience did Powell gain from this? Lessons learned. So looming uh, large throughout Powell's story is is the the lessons in history of the Vietnam War. Uh, and so once the war was over, Powell's is part of this large group of uh, coming up uh, military officers who essentially thought they want to avoid the problems, do not repeat the problems of the Vietnam War, was often referred to as the ghost of the Vietnam War. Uh, And so in Panama, when Powell is chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, this is a time where we have uh, General Noriega as the dictator there, uh, and they had um, elections uh, down, uh, down in Panama, 
uh, but they were they were there was corruption of which Noriega essentially rigged the election in his favor. There were all kinds of problems with the drug trade and instability. And so President uh, Bush decides uh, to invade the country. And so Powell, as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, right, he is the primary military advisor to the president and the primary military advisor to the Secretary of Defense, Dick Cheney. Uh, and so Powell has a firsthand look about uh, helping to oversee uh, the invasion and its operation. Uh, and Powell thought it confirmed uh, what he and previously Secretary Weinberg would call what would become known as the Powell Doctrine. Uh, and it's seen as a, an example of the Powell Doctrine, meaning that to avoid the, the, the troubles of Vietnam, that the president uh, needed to determine that military action was needed because of a direct vital na national interest, that he needed to set very clear and attainable objectives, uh, and that the amount of force that the U.S. military should apply must be decisive, if not overwhelming, uh, and so not a gradual buildup, if you will, uh, but decisive from the out outtake. Uh, and though while there were some problems and mistakes made uh, in the war in Panama, Powell saw it as a general success and a general validation of the Weinberger slash Powell doctrine uh, about that's, this is the proper way of war fighting. Uh, and Powell at this time, Powell's not like a commander in the field, but he is on television regularly. So this is the first time that Powell really becomes a national figure because the American people are seeing him on news, the news every night, talking about progress in the war. Uh, and so he really kind of gets this uh, this first grounding uh, of knowledge Um giving knowledge to American people, but also the re receptivity to seeing him as a trustful, commanding, confident person. And of course, this is only magnified uh, later when President Bush de decides to fight the first war in Iraq, uh, where the Iraqi military had invaded Kuwait. And President Bush makes the decision uh, that the United States is going to wage a war to get Iraqi troops out of Kuwait and restore Kuwaiti, Kuwaiti sovereignty. Uh, and Pal again, is really important in terms of helping oversee the larger planning for the war. Uh, but again, he's not in the field like General Schwarzkopf fighting the battles. He remains in Washington as the primary advisor to the president and defense secretary. But again, he's on TV regularly talking about the progress of the war. And he really becomes a celebrity uh, in many ways and well liked by not just Democrats or Republicans, but also centrists. Uh, and so he's on his way to becoming the most trusted, the most popular kind of military uh, figure since World War II. The Clinton, the Clinton administration, what was General Powell's major issue there? It's, it's interesting because um, after Clinton beats George Bush for the presidency, uh, and of course he's a Democrat, and so Powell's career as a high-ranking officer has largely been under Republican administrations. His new boss coming in, uh, Bill Clinton, during the campaign uh, Clinton had promised to end the military's policy uh, against having homosexuals serve in the U.S. military. Uh, this was a very controversial issue uh, back then, uh, and a majority of people in the military, certainly the senior leadership, uh, did not want to end the policy ban against homosexuals in the military because they thought it would cause all kinds of disruption within the ranks uh, to have um, homosexuals serve in the military. So but because the president, right, Powell's new boss, had promised it in a campaign uh, before he was elected, uh, 
Powell knew he was going to have to deal with this issue. He would call it a hot potato. Uh, and he tried to de defer it as much as possible to give Clinton, give Clinton some more time to be president, have some legislative victories before tackling something so controversial. Uh, and in the end, Powell proposes a compromise uh, to the president. Uh, which leads to a policy uh, that was known as don't ask, don't tell. Uh, and so the idea is the military would not be asking people if there were homosexuals uh, and people did not have to admit one way or another, and then they could successfully serve in the military. Uh, and so it was controversial in terms of being a compromise, uh, but President Clinton supported the compromise. He thought politically it was the correct thing, pragmatic thing to do. Uh, and Powell uh, got a lot of credit uh, for kind of negotiating the compromise, but he also got criticized by a lot of Americans for the first time who disagreed with the compromise, that uh, they thought that there should just be uh, the ban against uh, homosexual militia should have been just ended outright, uh, not this compromise uh, that he had led. So it was a really difficult time for him, but uh, for many people, they saw it as effective leadership and service of the president. Civilian years. Tell us about the retired General Powell and his best-selling book. Yeah, so uh, Powell serves for uh, President Clinton uh, for about nine months. So he finished four years as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And when he retires, uh, he immediately has signed a, a very lucrative book contract to write his autobiography. I believe he was paid $6 million at the time, which is a lot more than that even today. Uh, and so um, by the time uh, Powell was writing the book, uh, and it came out about a year or so later, he went on a book tour. And uh, and uh, I would compare it to what was known as Beatlemania when the Beatles came to the United States in 1964, because uh, Powell was just mobbed by people going to these uh, uh, book signings that he would do. Uh, I think he had, uh, in the end, 60 stops uh, at different cities. There would be lines wrapped around the block to get in to have him sign a copy of his book. And he was doing all kinds of television shows, uh, late night shows, news shows, uh, and was really this unheralded celebrity. Nobody had seen really anything like it. Uh, and it was at that same time uh, that Powell was uh, thinking about possibly running for president. After six weeks and thinking about running for president, he had a mentor and the mentor told him not to run. Tell us about that mentor. Yes, there was actually a couple of people close uh, to Powell including former members people and people who had worked for him, uh, just loyal personal friends. Um, and for many of them, they thought uh, that Powell had been really successful in his career, often kind of as the number two person, uh, right? And so even as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he was the advisor to the president. He was advisor to the defense secretary, um, that they never saw him uh, at the top because when you put yourself kind of at the top leadership, you, you're going to suffer a lot of criticisms from people. And they just didn't think temperamentally uh, running for president and everything you would have to do as to run for president, all the uh, backslapping you would have to do and the deal making you would have to do and the fundraising you would have to do. They didn't see it as a good fit for his temperament that way. Uh, and so Powell wrestled with it on uh, the question of whether he, she should run or not. <clears throat> his son, for example, Michael, was an advocate of him running. And I think Powell wanted to be president. Uh, his wife didn't want him to run. Uh, she was raised in Alabama in the deep south, what Powell would call the old south. Uh, and she knew 
um, of the racism that still existed in the country. Uh, and she did fear uh, that he would risk uh, literal assassination by running for president, if not being president. Um, and Powell really wrestled with it. The stress uh, caused him some health issues. Uh, he lost 20 pounds over the course of six months. He said he would wake up one morning, I'm going to run. He would wake up the next morning, I shouldn't run. He, he would vacillate between the two. Uh, and in the end, uh, <clears throat> he decided not to run. Um, and I don't think it's because his the reasons his wife didn't want him to run. Uh, I just really think politically, uh, he didn't have uh, kind of the fire in the belly that it would take to campaign. Uh, there was some concern whether was it was he even certain he could win uh, the Republican nomination. He had decided he was a Republican more than a Democrat. Democrat uh, and the stress of perhaps running for the presidency and losing uh, was something that really Powell didn't want to consider. So after that, he decides to become uh, active with boards. Tell us about the Alliance for Youth, the nonprofit. Yeah, you're right. He he joined uh, multiple boards, uh, including Howard at Howard University. He joined the board there, uh, the United Negro College Fund. Uh, he was a board member for five years uh, there, uh, and then he got involved and essentially became the CEO of um, something, an organization called America's Promise, which, as you said, was uh, really a national network to help young people. And this, I think you can draw a straight line from Powell's childhood with his parents, uh, where he saw education as being uh, sacrosanct. And so how could he invest even his own money, but to raise money from other wealthy people, uh, to invest in communities across the country, to provide for young um, underprivileged kids, uh, a safe environment uh, to promote their education success, to provide mentoring, uh, to find internships, uh, that this became a lifelong passion. Uh, and, and his wife actually Alma, eventually takes over as CEO of their nonprofit, uh, of which he was um, committed to for years and years, and, and it's still going uh, to this day. And so Powell, at this time in, in retirement as a civilian, basically spends his time balancing charitable work, community service, um, and basically being a leadership lecturer across the country, uh, of which was very lucrative. He was extremely popular. And so corporations would pay large sums of money to have them come speak uh, to their employees at conferences and things like that. And so uh, it was really a good life uh, for him in retirement. Seven years retired, January 21st, 2001. Tell us about him being confirmed to the Secretary of State. And based on your research, do you think he was frustrated? Well, I think uh, those kind of seven years in retirement leading up to that point, I think Powell uh, basically was a, getting a little restless. Uh, doing kind of the same things over and over again. And he kind of wanted to get back in the game, if you will. Uh, certainly uh, other presidents, including uh, President Clinton, had tried to get him to come back into public service to become Secretary of Defense, for example. Uh, but Pal had decided that uh, he, he, if he was going to come back to government service, he actually didn't want to be Secretary of Defense. His preference was, would be to be Secretary of State. Uh, and so when George W. Bush, um, the the son of President George Bush, um, when he won election against uh, Al Gore, 
and kind of the famous controversial election 2000, uh, Powell had actually given a couple speeches uh, supporting Bush in the election. And there was just kind of this unwritten, undiscussed assumption that if George Bush became president in 2000, taking office in 2001, as you say, um, that Powell would get the position. And indeed, um, uh, Powell was nominated to be secretary of state. And I think he was very, very happy to be back into government service where he could exercise uh, significant influence for the betterment of the country. Uh, and so it's ironic because at this time, of, there's a reunion also with Dick Cheney, uh, right? And so Dick Cheney becomes uh, uh, the vice president under George W. Bush, where Powell had served with Dick Cheney uh, within the previous Bush administration. So there was a bit of a reunion uh, going on there, but Powell certainly was very happy uh, in his new role. Tell us about the most disastrous intelligency failure in American history. <laughs> Yeah. So, of course, one of the things that when people ask me, was Powell uh, an effective secretary of state, a good secretary of state? I have to just say, I think the record is complicated and it's a mixture that there are very good things you can point to. Uh, for example, his leadership of the State Department, some 40,000 employees right, scattered around worldwide. He really was a transforming leader for those people and the department as a whole, upgrading, for example, their facilities, upgrading their technology, increasing staffing, uh, really did a remarkable job uh, that way. Um, and he also had some big successes in global health issues. But as you say, the biggest thing that uh, looms as Powell Secretary of State was the decision to invade Iraq, right? The second war uh, in Iraq, uh, and that it was based on uh, just horrible intelligence. And Powell is known for giving this speech uh, a month before the invasion, uh, internationally televised uh, to the United Nations uh, National Security. Uh, and Powell makes the case uh, for war, uh, that he is... Um, is really in terms of kind of giving these categorical certainties that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction, whether they're chemical or biological, on the verge of having nuclear weapons, having close connections with terrorist groups uh, like Al Qaeda, because we have to remember this is after 9-11. And so there is some great fear about weapons of mass destruction and how they might be used, especially by terrorists. Um, uh, and so Powell gives this speech of which he essentially says there's no doubt that there are weapons of mass destruction. There's no doubt this is an imminent threat, meaning there's no doubt that we have to invade the country. Well, of course, we find out subsequently that there were no weapons of mass destruction and that Powell's speech essentially was all wrong. Uh, and so as a biographer trying to understand how Powell could have given such a speech that that really kind of was influential in many ways, and it influenced me personally at, at the time, that um, I, I don't believe that Powell was being dishonest, as some people have suggested. So I, I don't see it as uh, Powell didn't think they had weapons of mass destruction. I believe Powell actually believed that there were we weapons of mass destruction uh, and that he saw that the war uh, was legitimate. The problem was when he was he and his staff were putting the speech together with the CIA, uh, I think Powell suffered not from really an ethical lapse, but what I argue is more of an intellectual lapse, uh, that he suffered from what psychologists call confirmation bias. Uh, and so I think because Powell was certain there were weapons of mass destruction, when he was looking at the intelligence data, he was locking in only to the pieces of evidence that supported his views, that confirmed his views. 
So uh, the parts of evidence that raised questions about his view, he, he discarded those because he believes something already to be true. Uh, and when we all when you believe something to be true, you're not open to uh, countervailing facts. Uh, and so I think that is what in the end got Powell into trouble uh, was his mistaken beliefs about weapons of mass destruction. Uh, and Powell knew for the rest of his life, including when I spoke with him, uh, that this would be the biggest blot on his record, he would say, or the biggest stain, he would say, uh, on his record. Uh, and certainly it is true. Uh, that way. But I think the story of Powell giving the speech is perhaps more complicated than the conventional wisdom often uh, likes to, to point out. What do you want the reader to gain from your book once they finish reading it? Uh, I would say two, two primary uh, threads. Uh, the first is I talk a lot about Powell as being a subordinate. Um, when we started earlier talking about how did this kid from a working class, right, immigrant neighborhood who wasn't great at school along the way. Uh, how does he become the most trusted, uh, right, most respected military political figure of the post-Cold War era? That That's huge arc. Uh, that a big part of understanding that is um, the conventional wisdom, I think, would be that he was such a great leader. And certainly he displayed uh, excellent leadership in the military, especially at uh, kind of the lower levels like in Fort Campbell or in South uh, uh, Korea. But I really argue that Powell, for the most part, rose as fast as he did to such prominence uh, was because he was an excellent subordinate uh, to very powerful people, both military leaders and political leaders. And those powerful leaders elevated Powell promotion after promotion after promotion. Uh, and so we always have to be thinking about most leaders are also followers of someone else. And so we're, leaders are often toggling between, am I leading my people or am I supporting my boss? And Powell is just an excellent representation of the skills you need uh, to become successful at both. Um, and the second point I would hope leaders would come away with ties directly to the subtitle of the book, uh, which is Imperfect Patriot. Uh, and I think it's it, the admission that we're, we're all imperfect, uh, right? Eve, I, I mentioned to General Powell in our interview, I said, even our greatest presidents, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, uh, FDR, uh, even as great as they were, they were still flawed people in their personal lives. They made mistakes. Uh, and as president, uh, they had policies uh, that were grievous errors. Uh, and that we should just be reminded, even someone as successful as Powell, even as we all might look at each other individually, we're all imperfect. Uh, but I think a big lesson is to learn from our mistakes that we make, all right, to amend from them, uh, right, and to do better. And so I think Powell can help us think along those ways. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on? Yes, thank you, Dr. Tyler. My, uh, my next book is coming out this September, uh, and it's called uh, Generals and Admirals, Criminals and Crooks. Uh, and this is a story, both historical and contemporary, about a small faction of our leaders in the military, the Navy, the Army, the Marines, the Air Force, who continually get into ethical or criminal problems. Uh, and so it's a book that's basically kind of alerting the country um, that we continue to suffer from some uh, bad, seriously bad leadership uh, at the highest ranks of the American military. Even though it's a small proportion of our generals and admirals, it's still a very real problem that I think most people don't know is out there. So it might cause a, a bit of controversy and, and maybe in some sense, I'm hoping it will. Thank you so much. We'll be looking forward to reading that book. And again, thank you so much, Professor Matthews, for being on the show.
Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Tyler. It's been a pleasure.